Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I'd like to start off with a question today. <clears throat> you know, I kind of like to do that, get you thinking a little bit about something. And um, I want you to actually be serious about this. Take a moment. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? No strings attached, no parameters other than real life. Don't want to hear about Superman and Ant-Man and uh, Doorman. Um, no strings attached, no parameters. Who are your real life heroes? Who do you admire? Who do you look up to? Who would you like to emulate in your life? Seriously, I'd like you to come up with a, a few names of real people if you can right now. Maybe you can ask your children this same question today. You actually might be surprised by their answers. If you're struggling, it might interest you to know that in a recent study by, of adults by researchers, fully 70%, 70% of North Americans say they have no living heroes. Of course, we're not limited to having heroes that are still living, but still, 70% had no living heroes. Researchers for the World Almanac and Book of Facts asked 2,000 North American 8th grade students to name prominent people they admired, prominent people they wanted to be like. 2,000 8th grader, graders, every one of the top 30 prominent personalities who were named was either an entertainer or an athlete. Every single one. Not a single statesman, not an author, not an artist, not a musician, as far as classical goes, not an architect, not a doctor, not an astronaut. No one captured the imagination of these students like these entertainers or athletes did. The researchers concluded, therefore, that the heroes and, and heroines of this day, actually, you know what, they're changing that. It's going to be heroes is now going to be generic, no matter what the gender that our young people are looking up to in our society, all the heroes that our people are looking up to in our society have made it big, but not necessarily people who have done big things. Do you see the difference? In a recent study, British adults were asked who they would want their children to look up to. It might be a question you'd ask yourself. Family members topped the list, as you might expect, followed by, remember this was done in Britain, the multi-millionaire entrepreneur daredevil Richard Branson was number two. Jesus came in third. Jesus came in third. Teachers ranked fourth. Nelson Mandela fifth. Princess Diana sixth of who you would want your kids to be like. Jesus was third. Now if you've been tuned into our series so far, you will have perhaps added to your list a couple of new heroes, I hope. Last week, Pastor Martin led us through Acts 5, and in it we see the apostles going to obedience school in a way. They were all arrested and yet stayed true to their faith and with courage faced the lashings that were administered when they refused to obey the court rather than obey God. This is the first time we see the physical abuse now entering the picture for preaching in the name of Jesus. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then comes two of the coolest verses, I think, in all of scriptures. Look at what it says. 
the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. There's a whole message in there just by itself. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, that's just awesome, isn't it? That's courage. That's faith. These guys are heroes in my book. It was the second time, actually, of arrest and appearing before the Sanhedrin for both Peter and John, the high court, the Sanhedrin. And now both times after they've been arrested and released, the church has grown. But if you live long enough, if you work long enough, if you're married long enough, there's a high probability that someday you're going to experience a problem. Am I right? In the text in the book of Acts that we're looking at, that the supernatural church has just got launched. The Holy Spirit has just launched the church and is doing so well. And yet right now, here we are, chapter 6, it crashes headlong into its first true internal problem. And nobody, nobody saw it coming. It begins, in those days when the number of disciples was rapidly increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained about the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. People are finding faith in Christ in this brand new church. It's expanding. Lonely people are being invited into community. The sick are being healed. The worship is fantastic. The preaching is fired up. Signs and wonders are taking place in this church. Acts 2.43 describes the whole feeling of the church as everyone kept on feeling this sense of awe, this sense of fearing God. And the church in Jerusalem grew rapidly, so much so that it is already made up of several thousand people. And just about when everything seems to be running smoothly, a problem emerges in the church. And it has to do with the distribution of food for the poor of the congregation. Now give this church some credit before we go the other way. It, has, it was a brand new church, and according to this first part of Acts chapter 6, they had already begun a care network, a care program, a food distribution program for widows in the church who couldn't put food on their table. Remember now, this is long before we had the social net pro programs, the, the, the things that catch us now in our society to help people. You depended then solely upon your family to meet every single one of your needs. And widows and orphans were often figuratively and literally left out in the cold. This feeding program sent a signal through the whole city of Jerusalem that the church cared deeply about the whole person. Not just someone's spiritual needs, but their physical and material and nutritional needs as well. You know, when I, when I came here, uh, and even before I came here, I guess because my son was here, just overjoyed that Southland actually cared enough to think beyond this room, right? To do the distribution program that we do, to do the food and clothing drive that we do, to have the, their clothing closet open year-round. It's what the early church did, and it made a difference in the community. But in the, middle of this program, in the middle of this program, a problem arises. It's very important for you to understand the root of this problem. It's not simply that some people are getting a few more groceries in their grocery bag. It appears to be a discrimination issue. This is far more difficult than potentially a more volatile problem where someone thinks one group in the church is better than another group. It's indefensible theologically, really. 
The church leaders in this brand new church know that throughout the pages of scripture, God says over and over and over and over again that with him there is no partiality. He looks at everybody the same, all races, all creeds, all colors, all languages, and everyone comes to God, everyone who comes to God, he will redeem them. He will restore their lives. There is no partiality with God. But there seems to be partiality in the way people in the food distribution program are treating some of the widows. So what do the senior leaders of that church do? Immediately upon hearing that there's a problem brewing in this church, they all resign. No. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers and sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Now, if you'll recall back like a little over a month ago when we started this, I said there was something really amazing that transfers and changes between the first chapter of Acts and where we find ourselves now. Do you remember what it was? It was that when they had to appoint somebody to replace Judas, they, they cast lots. Do you remember? It was just like, let's leave it up to chance and hope that God is a part of the chance. Now, they need to find new leaders. What do they do? They just trust that the Spirit is leading them, and then they find them, and they appoint them, and it goes forward. There's no casting dice, throwing lots. Who's going to get the short straw anymore? The Holy Spirit is now present in their lives and in their decisions. It's a cool thing that it just kind of, if we don't pay attention, just passes us by. The 12 disciples had been receiving leadership mentoring from Jesus for three years, and they had learned well in that time. They hear of a problem, and what do they do? They move towards it. And that's what the leaders in the early church did. Then they put an action plan together so the problem could be resolved. The 12 disciples called the core group of the church together and instructed them to choose seven individuals. But don't just line up the first seven who walk in the door to volunteer to help solve the problem. The problem solvers should have these four qualities about them. First, they were to be believers. They were to be picked from among you. Second, they had to be of good repute, reputable, have a good public testimony, have good character, character that was being evidenced in, in how they behaved and, and other people saw it. Third, they must be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, which of course is where we're spending our time in Acts here. It's why it's, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit that we're calling this series. Because unless someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not going to be as good at solving that problems that come up in the church. Because when you have the Holy Spirit, you have thoughts that aren't your thoughts anymore. You don't own those things. You've given yourself over to the Lord and to the Spirit that's working within you. You have insight that's not your own. You have a fairness in your spirit that maybe isn't your own. The Holy Spirit does all of this inside of a human being in our, in our minds and our hearts. So whoever is selected has to have has to have, this is not a maybe question, this is a has to have the Holy Spirit in them. And finally, they must be wise. They have the wisdom of the Spirit, and they have street wisdom. The word applies to both here. They have to be the kind of people who have insight from the Spirit, who have some experience in the real world, if you want to call it that, in solving problems. They have to be wise. The selection pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, or Stephen, 
or Stephen, whatever you like, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Seven individuals are found. Interestingly enough, and I struggled with them because all names of the seven are Greek names, and although it doesn't necessarily prove that they were all Hellenistic Greek Jews, it would seem that there was attention paid to the fact that it was the Hellenists, it was the Greeks who were complaining, who had lodged the complaint of discrimination in the first place. So they're wise, the people are wise enough to see, well, we can end some of that thought process by actually putting Hellenists in to be the ones to solve this problem. These seven are presented then to the 12 apostles, who obviously approved, because in the next verse we read, the apostles prayed and laid hands on the seven, which means the apostles commissioned them. They affirmed them publicly. They're saying, we believe in these guys. They're, they're who it seems right to the Holy Spirit and to us, right? And their belief was justified as apparently they solved the issue in very short order. They made the fixes. And look how this section ends. So, which indicates after the problem was solved, that one little two-letter word. So, the word of God continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. This short interlude in Acts should serve to remind all of us that whether they are church or personally related, all problems should be named, should be faced, should be approached, and there should be an action plan put together to resolve them. Don't let them lie and fester. Then with prayer, with faith-filled prayer and with the abiding presence and wisdom of the Holy Spirit to help you, move forward in obedient action to defeat the problem before the problem defeats you. So this interlude now, we kind of, we're going to change direction in a moment here, and yet I'm, I'm hoping you'll see from the outline I put together that it's, it's really just a, also a prelude to what's coming next, even the pattern of what's happened here. It also serves now to introduce to us the person who is going to be the historical link between Peter, who has you know, ostensibly been sort of the leader of the 12, the one who we hear about the most, from Peter now to Paul. Yes, Peter still is there, and Peter's going to make his appearance in future chapters, but this is the moment when we start to transfer who Acts is about beside the Holy Spirit or who the Holy Spirit is working into to Paul. So our, our attention for a moment is now drawn to one of the seven helpers selected, one of those seven who were just selected to be the overseers of the food distribution program. A person who I suspect did not make your hero, hero list a few moments ago. I suspect it might have been a person you never even thought of. His name is Stephen, and it means, appropriately enough, crown. That's what the word means, crown. And it's his story we read in the rest of Acts 6 and through Acts 7. Stephen is a real hero. He's the first martyr of the Christian church that we know of. And when you read his story, it moves you to the edge of your seat for all the reasons that modern-day stories of heroes move us to the edge of our seat. Because he's just a regular guy. He's just an ordinary guy. He's just one of us. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't even an apostle. He's a layman appointed to do a job in the church, a regular guy with a heroic faith. 
And that's what I like about the book of Acts. The book of Acts is really all about the acts of the Holy Spirit working through regular people like Stephen, like you, and like me. And when you read these true stories, these riveting stories, supernatural stories in the book of Acts, they inspire us. Because if God could do the kind of things he did through them, those people like Stephen and the others in that day, then he can do the same thing in us through people like you and me today. So let's spend the rest of our time together today looking at the heroic faith of Stephen as it's recorded in several scenes in Acts 6 and 7. And let's learn from him how we can become courageous followers of Christ as well. So if you've brought your Bibles with you, I just invite you to turn to Acts 6 and 7 because I'm going to be hopscotching through it a bit to cover it in the time we have. In verse 6, 8, it begins with a further introduction and commendation for Stephen. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now the church is growing. God is using Stephen. But not everybody in Jerusalem was happy about the church's growth or about Stephen's ministry. You know, whenever a church begins to have an impact in the community, sooner or later, there's going to be opposition that rises up. Is there a single person here today that's surprised by that? Is there a single person here that I have to unpack this further for? Because we know this here, don't we? We know this. And it happened in Jerusalem. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. So... Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, this should sound a little like we're just telling the same story over and over again. This is their modus operandi. They keep going back to what they will, you know, it kind of worked for Jesus. Let's see if it works for Stephen. We have, so they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, before the high court. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking about this holy place and against the law. Against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. You know, and and when we hear that, if we were sitting there and we were the court, we should all go like this. <gasps> oh, what? So once again, virtually the same scene plays out before the Sanhedrin, the high court, as has been done with Jesus, with Peter and John, and then once again with all the apostles. Once again, we are in the courtroom again. And it has all the drama of a John Grisham novel. It's an incredible scene. Here's Stephen, just a layman, an ordinary guy, ordinary member of the church, someone that God was using, an innocent man on trial for his life, facing a rigged jury on trumped-up charges with bribed witnesses. Various serious charges, these were, of speaking against the temple and speaking against or changing, talking about what they thought was changing the law of Moses, which labeled him as a blasphemer. There really was no higher kind of, you know, uh, horrible thing to do, any kind of thing that would convict you further or deeper than being called a blasphemer. It doesn't look good for Stephen. The text tells us that at that moment, all the eyes of the courtroom are riveted on Stephen. 
And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And, and the chapter ends right there. I have to think that those who gathered to make chapters and verse out of the original long script so that we might be able to locate ourselves in the word, I have to think they had a little bit of, of sense of drama here when they decided right there we're going to break the chapter. What's going to happen? I know. I know what we'll do. Let's end the chapter here. If they ever make this into a TV show, this will be a great spot for a commercial after we zoom in on every face. <gasps> And then the high priest, the chief prosecutor, as the next chapter begins, asks the question. This time it's Stephen. Are these charges true? Now make no mistake about it. At this moment, Stephen's life hangs in the balance and he knows it. How he responds to this question. The words that he chooses will determine whether he lives or dies. Will he compromise? Would you compromise? How would you respond in this situation? If you had been arrested for the crime of telling others about Jesus, if you were arrested for being a follower of Christ, if you found yourself on trial for your life for being a, a, a member or a tender at Southland Church, how would you respond? It's not uncommon in the world around us, folks. How would you respond? That's where Stephen finds himself in this kind of circumstance. Now I know that very few of us, hopefully as God continues to shower his grace and mercy and love on us, will most likely never be called upon to pay that ultimate price. But we can see the times changing, right? But I know that every one of us every day faces challenges that test our alliance to the one that we call Lord and Master. It reminds me of a story. A story about a fellow who wanted to be a hero. There's a pastor, a Boy Scout, and an information technologist as passengers on a small plane. The pilot came back to the cabin and told everybody the plane was going down. But there was only three parachutes and four people. The pilot added, I should have one of those parachutes because I have a wife and three small children. He grabs one parachute and jumps out the door. The information technologist said, I should have one of the parachutes because I'm the smartest man in the world and everybody needs me for the future. So he grabs a second parachute and he jumps out. The pastor turns to the Boy Scout and with a sad smile says, you're young, and I've lived a rich life, and I know where I'm going, so you take the remaining parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout says, relax, Pastor. The smartest man in the world just put my knapsack on and jumped out. Every day we are confronted with decisions that could determine our destinies, right? We're not going to read all of chapter 7 because it's the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. As long as three of Paul's sermons put together, which would make it almost as long as Pastor Stephen. 
I'll edit that out. It's a powerful message. I'm only going to highlight it so you get to go home and read it through. It's a powerful message. But in this message you see, Stephen gives powerful presentation of the validity of his newfound faith, the Christian faith. Stephen proves this point by citing the simple facts of Jewish history and climaxing it with virtually the same accusation of the Sanhedrin that Peter has twice already made. You'd think they'd get the point. He first cites the history of Abraham because Father Abraham was the one to whom all Jews looked up to and to whom God gave the promise of descendants and a land to call their own. Stephen then passes on to Joseph, and who is a foreshadow of the Messiah to come. He was sold because of envy, but God was with him. There came a famine which pictured Israel's condition at that time, and it was Joseph who saved them. Then Stephen moves on to speak of Moses. At length, likely because of the charge that had been leveled at him that he was changing the law of Moses, he spends a little extra time on Moses. He points out how Moses, the deliverer, had been rejected by his own people at first, and how Moses spoke of the Messiah who was to come. Yet right while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, the Ten Commandments, the people were making a gold calf down below and starting to worship idols. Stephen points out that the turning away from God continued on, bringing him to the time of Solomon in the temple. And since the trumped-up charges had also accused him of defaming the temple, he reminded his audience that God does not dwell in temples made by men. Finally, Stephen turns the tables on his accusers, the Sanhedrin before him, the high court, and he says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart, you are deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? What a great accusation. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, he says, and now you're doing it too. They even killed the, one, the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom, by the way, you betrayed and murdered. This is Stephen, an ordinary guy whose name was put forward to help with the food distribution effort in the church. Yet, we see here he's a man of heroic faith, who's a wise, gracious, spirit-filled man, a man who is a mighty man of God, who knows his Bible, and it has given him great spiritual authority as he faces this high court. So how do you get a faith like that? Where does that come from? Well, I can tell you it doesn't come overnight. Heroic faith is not made in the dramatic moment when, you know, in that moment when you're put on trial and you've never thought about it before. It's developed over time. And it's the culmination of many private, courageous, intentional decisions that maybe nobody ever even knows about. There are many examples of this in the Bible. King David of the Old Testament became a national hero when he killed Goliath as a young man. But his heroic faith was developed as a shepherd boy over the many years he was just out in the backwoods guarding sheep, taking on lions and bears. Saul of Tarsus had to go into the Arabian desert for three years for God to prepare him to become the mighty, courageous Apostle Paul. Moses needed 40 years in the desert for God to get him ready to be a liberating hero of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. This is how God develops heroic faith. Over time, in a very personal, private process of making courageous decisions. 
So how about you? Are you cooperating with God in the development of your courageous, heroic faith? We have opportunities every single day, I believe, to develop it. Every single day to make courageous decisions. We don't know anything about Stephen before Acts 6. Not a thing. But we can deduce some conclusions about his personal growth. The development of his heroic faith we see in these two chapters. Obviously, he made some courageous decisions. Incidentally, they're still exactly the same decisions that we are faced with. First of all, he had to decide whether to be a follower of Christ or not. Have you made that decision yet? Stephen made a decision to become a follower of Christ and cast his lot with this group called the People of the Way, this new movement, these followers of Christ. He made a decision to follow Jesus. He then made a decision to learn the Word of God. He uses Scripture all the way through his long sermon as his main points of argument. Have you made the decision to learn, to really learn the Word of God? To know the Scriptures. And as you read his message in chapter 7, you see that Stephen has a huge, tremendous handle on the Old Testament Bible. He's memorized lots of it. He made a courageous decision also to allow God to use him and to use his spiritual gifts that God had deposited in him. Are you allowing God to use the gifts that he's given you? Are you serving, using them for his church somewhere? When asked to take responsibility of leadership in the local church, Stephen said, yes. You've heard Pastor Stephen say, that's what it comes down to. Will you give your yes to God? Stephen gave his yes to God. And God has used his gifts. Are you allowing God to use the gifts he's given you? So he takes on this responsibility. He didn't seek it, but he embraced it. And, it. and it sought him rather than him seeking it. And he accepted that responsibility. Are you accepting responsibility that's extended to you as part of the church family? You know, we each have a responsibility. As part of this family, we all have a responsibility. Doesn't everybody have a responsibility in your family, your nuclear family? These are the kind of decisions that build heroic faith, little step by little step. And when Stephen had the opportunity, he was a bold witness for Christ. He took advantage of those opportunities to share what Jesus meant to him and what Jesus could do for them as well. Do you take advantage of those kinds of opportunities? I dare say there's probably one every day. To be a bold witness. Stephen was such a bold witness, witness that it eventually cost him his life. And he became the first martyr that we know of for the Christian faith. But I want you to realize, even though he may have been the first martyr, he wasn't the last. He wasn't the last one by any means. There have been many, many thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands down through the centuries. His story has been repeated probably millions of times over down through the centuries to this very day. Persecution and martyrdom are obviously not finished yet. It was a problem in the first century. It continues to be with us to this day. It's been a problem down through the centuries, all the way through. As a matter of fact, experts tell us that more followers of Christ were killed in the 20th century for their faith in Jesus than all the previous 19 centuries before that. Combined. Stephen may have been the first to die for Christ, but he certainly wasn't the last. 
Some of you are thinking, does Jesus want me to die for him? Yeah. Yeah, yes, he does. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call to die for him if necessary, but more importantly, to live for him. To die to self and to choose to live for him. He wants you to die to yourself, to let the old go and become this new creation that he wants you to be. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you got to take up your cross. you got to die to self and live with me. Follow me. And the reverse is also true. If you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. When he said you must be willing to take up your cross, he wasn't describing some burden or stigma in following him. He was describing an instrument of death. Let's not forget. He's saying if you're going to follow me, you must follow me with your whole life. If you're willing to die for me, then you'd be willing to live for me, wouldn't you? And that's the call to live to Christ, to live for Christ and die to self. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He died for all that those who, should, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for us. I think it's ironic that Paul write those, wrote those words as we're about to see. Because we'll read in just a few moments at that stoning and execution of Stephen that someone is there. Saul, Paul, is there. Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, was participating in Stephen's execution, holding the cloak of those who were stoning, throwing the stones at Stephen. And Paul would later talk about how, as a witness of Stephen's death, it had a huge impact upon him and his becoming a follower of Jesus. Paul would later write, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus wants to live a daily life of courageous faith. So how do we get there? Here's what I've learned through my life and through scripture about this kind of courage, this kind of faith. This kind of courageous faith comes from living life in the hands of God and fighting the battles within. We often think, oh, it's all those external pressures. That's the real battle. I don't think so. The real battle is fighting the battles within. I think that's what these people of the way did. If you think back to chapter 1, there was little evidence of courageous faith. They had some internal stuff to deal with. They had some internal, internal stuff going on. The fear factor was an all-time high for them. They were hiding in an upper room somewhere. They felt inadequate. They felt alone. They felt insecure about their future. They were confused. And so they all got together and huddled, but they prayed. They got real honest then in their prayers with the inside stuff and they expressed their desperation to God. They acknowledged that they had some battles going on inside of them and they needed a supernatural touch from God and God showed up in the hearts of those honest, vulnerable people and the Holy Spirit moved inside of them. He continually told them the truth about who they now were and they got with each other and they devoted themselves to learning all about Jesus and all about his truth. And they prayed and they shared and they renewed their minds of that truth day by day by day. Courageous faith begins when you start fighting the internal stuff first. So let me ask you, what's inside of you that keeps you from doing what needs to be done? What kind of battles are going on inside of you that have you stuck in neutral? Or maybe even have you in reverse these days? What is it within you that you won't let uh, that won't let you properly relate to your wife, to your family, to your friends? 
What is it within you that won't allow you to say what you need to say to your husband? What is it within you that keeps you losing job after job after job? What is it within you that won't let you say no to peer pressure at school? What's the truth about what's going on inside of you? No excuses. Come to grips with that. Every courageous person that I know has blazed a trail into his or, own, his or her own heart and asked God to reveal what's there. Show me, God. Show me my heart. Reveal the truth about my fear and my inadequacies on the inside. Everybody that's ever gone through a recovery program knows that the very first step in that recovery is to recognize that you are powerless on your own. Drop the denial. Once the truth is told about your inside stuff, God can begin to remove those character defects and keep you from, and, and take you on the path now to real life. Courage, courageous faith comes from living life in the hands of God and fighting the battles inside. Joshua is a man that God appointed to follow Moses in the Old Testament. How would you like to be the one who has to fill Moses' shoes? You know, the guy who was around the burning bush, the guy who was part of the Red Sea, the guy who was bringing rock out of a water in the middle of the desert. Hollywood is firmly planted in my mind that Moses looked a lot like Charlton Heston. He's the one who God gave the Ten Commandments to, the one who was called the most humble man on the face of the earth. That's Moses. Joshua gets to follow him. Can you imagine what Joshua was thinking as he steps into those sandals and leads the people into the promised land? Is it any wonder at that moment God says, yep, you're the man, Joshua, but let's do a little work on the inside stuff first. And look what he says to Joshua. Let's read it aloud together, would you, with me? Have I not commanded you? Speak with me. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Do you see the two great paralyzers there? Being terrified and being discouraged. Do you see the thing that cancels both of those two things out? I will be with you. Don't be terrified. Don't be discouraged. I will be with you. I've asked God the same question in word and thought throughout the Bible. And you've probably asked it somewhere yourself. Why me? Why me? I'm happy on the farm. Ministry, leave it behind. Start being a pastor in some way, shape, or form. Why me? I'm just an ordinary guy. I, I didn't go to Bible school. Like, this can't be right. Why me? Why me? Lead pastor for many years. Things are going on. I'm actually thinking about, yeah, well, you know, I think this is where things are going to end for me as far as the pastorate goes. And then I get a call from a pastor at Southland Church. We need somebody old. Battle's inside, right? Uh, I guess that's me. Yeah, I, I guess I qualify, weirdly enough. Why me? Why call me? Why are you speaking to me about this again, Lord? 
Why me? COVID comes. I'm to speak that Sunday. Why me? Really, why me? I have had this fear of speaking to a camera. As all of you at home have noticed, I've never looked at you directly until now. I tried it once at one of the churches I was lead pastor at before because they had messed up taping the message and that's okay. On Monday, just get up and say it again in front of the camera. Couldn't do it. We actually didn't do it. I couldn't do it. And so that fear built up inside of me that I can't just speak to a camera. I'm slated to speak, I think, for the second or third time here. And everybody's away and then COVID strikes and... Friday, we're here with the, uh, the ball, father-daughter ball. And by Sunday, there's no church. There's nothing going on. Every, nobody's allowed in the church kind of thing. Everything's shut down. And you're going to just be speaking to the camera, Lauren. Why me? Why me? I know. I'll pretend that everybody's sitting in the chairs, just as you all are right now. I'll just come in. And I'll just pretend you're in all the chairs. I came in. They never put the chairs back after the father-daughter ball. <laughs> Why bother putting the lights on then? Exactly. Just show a light on the stage. Blank. Right? There's a camera out there somewhere. They even tried holding a big white flag up at the back like, focus on this, Lord. Nope. Couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. Why me? Why me? And then we faced a split. First Sunday after the, the split starts to happen, guess who's speaking? Why me? Why me? You know why? Because God wanted to grow me. God wanted to speak into my life. God wanted to build this heroic kind of faith in me. And I know he's doing the same thing for you. Face your fears. I am with you. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. And that is more than enough. The heart of the message from Stephen's life is this. Heroes do not set out to be heroes. They set out to make good, godly decisions. Stand firm in their faith. Make courageous choices on a daily basis. And when a crisis comes... And honestly, it will come. Heroic faith emerges. Did you catch it? Heroes don't set out to be heroes. They set out to make good, godly decisions every single time. Stand firm in their faith and make courageous choices on a daily basis according to what they know to be true. And it becomes a foundation for their life. And when a crisis comes, heroic faith emerges. Brings us to the final scene in Stephen's life. Near the end of chapter 7, having just delivered a brilliant defense of his faith, powerfully, boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the one that is anticipated by the Jewish people, that also is the one that the, this very court who he's speaking to rejected. He tells them straight up, you who have received the law that was given through angels, you haven't obeyed it. That's not a very good thing to say when you're on trial for your life, to accuse the judges of missing the point. 
And they responded. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is a really cool moment, people. This is a singular moment in all of Scripture. It's the only time. It's the only time. It's the only time that Jesus is ever described in the Bible as standing at the right hand of God. Every other single time, he's sitting at the right hand of God. But in this moment, someone is facing their death with heroic faith, and it makes me picture that he does this for every single one who faces death with heroic faith, faith like Stephen, that he will be there standing to gather them into his arms. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Not standing back like, oh, there goes another one. He's standing. He's standing. See me standing, Stephen. See me standing, you who would give your life for the cause. Isn't that a beautiful picture? You see, every believer has the assurance that Jesus will welcome us when our life is over. That he will welcome us into heaven with open arms. And he's got to be standing to do that, don't you think? We have that assurance that comes with faith in Christ. Jesus stands with those who die, those who live and die with heroic faith, and they make that transition with boldness and confidence. You see, just as God gives us grace that we need as we need to get through this life, he also gives us grace when we need it when this life is over. To get us through that time of transition from the, the world that is dying to the world that he's created that will live forevermore, he gives us dying grace. As the words of Stephen, the San, at the words of Stephen, the Sanhedrin covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. Can't you just can you know, la, 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 right? They just drowned him out. They rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, just Jesus, receive my spirit. Not only did Stephen live out his life like Jesus, but the text tells us he died like Jesus as well. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. You see, when you know who and you know what you're living for, you'll be ready to go. Whenever, however, whoever, however that comes to be, that when that time comes, you'll be ready. Make no mistake about it, Stephen's martyrdom, martyrdom did not make him a hero. His martyrdom only revealed his heroic faith that was already there. And he faced his death, the greatest trial of his life, with courage and boldness and confidence. He died well because he lived well. And his death became the turning point in the expansion of the Christian faith. And we're going to take up more of that next week. Jesus said, if any man come after me, he will deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. One of the most courageous things that I've ever done, one of the most courageous things I think you can do every day of your life is that when you get out of the bed in the morning, you listen to Jesus first and then you say, when he says follow me, you just say yes. You just say yes. That's what the apostles did. That's what Stephen did. That's what the early church did. That's people of courage. That's us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, 
So often we find our eyes swaying to look at the things of the world instead of the things that you look at. You don't look at the things of man like, like we do. We, look, we get strayed by outward appearance and, and, and by the big show. But you look at the heart. And the heroism that we see described in Stephen and the Apostles. helps us to understand that every one of us is also capable of being a hero in the faith because it is God in us. It was God in them. It is God in us. And that faith continues to grow and causes us to be heroes of the faith as well. It's not about looks, social standing. It's not about athletic ability. It's not about what we've accumulated our accomplishments, the one common denominator that graced the lives of every single heroic person mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is faith. Faith to seek him, faith to know him more, faith to take risks for God, faith to persevere. We want to be those kind of people. We want to be people of the way. We want to be people of compassion. We want to be people who put others before prophets. We want to be people who who value relationships. We want to be people who are consistent in our desire to follow you and that we put character before conformity. Help us to be willing to stand for you, to stand alone if necessary. We want to be people of commitment, God, commitment to you. We want to put the cause of Christ before comfort. So, Heavenly Father, we want to be people of faith before you. We want to put service before security. And I think every one of us in this room, grandparent or parent, would say, we want to be heroes in our home as well. We want to lead our children well so that they look up to us and want to emulate the faith that we have in you. But we're dependent on you to do that. We can't do that on our own. And we know that the key for all of that is still our own relationship with you. And we want to picture the kind of faithful heroes that our children will be when they grow up. And you're able to take parents and grandparents like us and turn us into courageous, heroic parents who make a difference in our homes. Help us to stand up for what's right, Father. Help us to be people-oriented, not purpose or program. Give us the courage to lovingly speak the truth to those who are destroying their lives by ignoring it. Help us to speak up for Christ and to share your love with those around us. That's the bottom line. And we pray this from our hearts, from our very souls. In Jesus' name and all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.